Uh, Jeff talked about our catechism class this morning. I just wanted to make mention of that one more time. For those of you who have not attended the catechism class, it might be a good time for you to begin attending starting next week. We just, this morning, there's three sections to the catechism, and we completed section one, which can be easily summarized. You can pick up the catechism midway through. So if you have missed it so far and you're thinking that it might be something good for you or for your family, I'd encourage you to come out next Sunday. We're going to change the time. Apologize, Jeff. I should have told you that. I didn't realize you were going to announce it. Uh, we are going to change the time. We'll put uh, that message out this week, but we're going to move it to 9 a.m. We've been uh, ending 45 to 55 minutes before service starts, which is, is probably too long. So we think we can push it. Also hoping that that might get more of you out. So 845 is too early, maybe nine. Uh, if that's the issue, if that's the issue. Um, but we just spend about 20 to 30 minutes together. Uh, we recite the question from the week before. Um, and then we look at the question for the week to come. We read some scriptures, some commentary, and make sure that we understand what truth it's teaching. Then we review it together at the end. And that's, that's basically it. And it's been good and helpful for those that have been attending. And he also mentioned for any of our young people who want to who wanna recite it, uh, if they do that, they get a pack of gum. They get a pack of gum. So, I mean, if you, and we have some of you, if they come every week, do the math. If you come every week, kids, listen, if you can come every week, and you can recite that catechism question. In a year, you will have received free 52 packs of gum, theoretically. 52 packs of gum. So that's, the, uh, that's probably the biggest push I could make right there. So next Sunday, 9 a.m., catechism class. We are going through and getting an understanding, a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches fundamentally and foundationally. So catch up with us. Come next Sunday, 9 a.m. Love to have you here. I, I did not attend the recent gospel conference that was hosted by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sacramento, though I know some of you did. Uh, Joel Beakey, a pastor, author, and seminary president from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He was the main speaker. I've heard him many times before. And I don't know if he shared this, in any of his messages, but apparently at his home church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Heritage Reformed Congregation, every worship service begins with Dr. Beakey taking the stage and turning his back to the congregation. And then he leads in some sort of reading or prayer, and then he faces the crowd for the rest of the worship service. And the reason... Dr. Beakey does this is to demonstrate humility. He does it to picture humility. He is the pastor in that church. He uh, has authority as a pastor. He, he is a leader in that church. People look to him and follow him. But at the end of the day, he is just another member of that church gathered every Sunday with the rest of the church to worship God and to worship God alone. So he pictures that by facing the same way the entire church does up towards the front where I imagine they have uh, some sort of a cross or lights, something 
The church in Corinth may have benefited from a practice like that. As we'll see again today, they had a problem and it was making too much of men. It was making too much of men and making too little of God. Specifically, they made too much of certain leaders. And then they even divided up under these different leaders, which was leading to all sorts of problems in their church. So in the verses that we're studying today, we'll hear from another angle. Paul's position on the foolishness of making much of these leaders, which included Paul, by the way. And he'll make his point through an argument, an analogy, and an alliance. So that's where we're going today. For those of you who love alliteration, we're looking at number one, an argument, number two, an analogy, and number three, an alliance. And as we move forward in this sermon, again, remember, this is God's word we're studying. And here alone, we learn who we are and who God is and preaching from this Bible. If it is inspired by God and helped by the Holy Spirit, which I've prayed for, if that happens, then then our minds will be instructed with the truth of God's word and our hearts will be ignited with affections for God. So before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, we ask that you would instruct our minds, that you would ignite our hearts, And that you would incline our wills to trust, honor, follow, and obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you if you don't own your own Bible, you'll find today's text on page 619. And our text today, starting in verse 5, begins with two questions. Look with me, there's two questions. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? And this is something Paul does a lot. In his writing, Paul asks a lot of questions. And Paul does that because he's a good writer. And he is a good preacher. And good preachers ask questions. Because questions... Force the listener to stop and think. If a sermon, for example, is just saying statements of truth over and over and over again, right? you can fall asleep, can lull you to sleep. You may not even engage with what's being said. You may not even think about what's being said. But a question forces you To stop and think. You can't be asked a question without stopping and thinking about an answer to that question. And so if you were to go through 1 Corinthians, for example, and circle all the question marks, you'd find 102. 102 questions just in this letter that we're studying. And two of them are right here. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? And to understand why Paul is asking those questions, we need a little bit of background. Paul and Apollos were first mentioned, these two together were first mentioned in chapter 1. 
verses 11 and 12. Let me read those two verses to you. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. So here is the problem. In this church in Corinth, many people had too high a view of man. Specifically men like Paul and Apollos. They had too high a view of man and too low a view of God. Which is actually a common problem. To have too high a view of people and too low a view of God is a problem we still grapple with today. There were members of this church putting men where only God belongs. They were favoring certain teachers. They were enslaved to their personal preferences. They were even idolizing certain leaders. And it was leading to chapter 1 verse 11, quarreling. 3 verse 3, jealousy. And 1 verse 10, division. And we'll read this soon in chapter 4, verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself, this is Paul talking, and Apollos, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. There's the division. They were puffed up in favor of one leader, of one teacher, against another. Evidently, some of them favored Paul. They thought Paul was smarter, maybe. Paul was more down to earth. Paul was more personable. Paul was an apostle. So they followed Paul's Twitter. They didn't follow Apollos' Twitter. Not only that, they looked down on those who followed Apollos and didn't follow Paul. How could you not follow Paul, they might say. How could you not see him as a better teacher or leader or preacher? But others favored Apollos. Apollos was a better preacher, they may have said. He was eloquent. He was refined. He represented the next generation of preacher. And so there were those who only downloaded Apollos' sermons. And they looked down on those who downloaded Paul's sermons. And so Paul is asking, what is the big deal with these guys? That's basically his question. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Who's your favorite teacher? Who are you tempted to make too much of. Let's do a show of hands. Who is your favorite pastor in this church? <laughs> you can imagine. That's what was going on in this church. There was Paul. There was Apollos. And some favored one over the other. They were open about it. They disagreed over it. They fought with each other. They were jealous of one another. Puffed up. Favoring one teacher over another. So that's the background. That's the background behind these questions. And now here's Paul's response. And in his response, I want you to hear first Paul's argument. 
Verse 5, here is Paul's argument against the exaltation of men. Exaltation, just putting them in high regard, too high a regard. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Well, Paul's argument is this. Your exaltation of these teachers is foolish because they are merely servants. Your exaltation of them or your, your worship of them, your making too much of them, your even idolizing of them, that is, here's his argument, that is foolish because they are merely servants. And did you notice the way Paul asked his question? This is sort of subtle, so I don't know if you caught it. But did he say, look with me at verse 5, did he say, who are Paul and Apollos or what are Paul and Apollos? That may not be the way we would ask the question. Who focuses on individuality? And personality. What focuses on role. And function. Paul is is beginning to drive home a point. Just in the way he asks these questions. Let me illustrate this for you. One way of asking this question. Appreciates the subject of the question. And the other humiliates the subject of the question. So imagine you're at a Christmas party. Imagine you are at a Christmas party and you see a man that you know, that you've met, and he is holding the hand of a woman you don't know, but who you presume to be his wife. So you walk over to him and you smile and gesture toward her And let me ask you, which question do you ask? Who is this or what is this? Those are two very different questions. And you may get two very different responses. One question appreciates her as an individual. Who is this? The other potentially humiliates her by objectifying her. What is this? And which question does Paul ask? What? What is Apollos? What is Paul? So again, if he asked who, the focus would be set on the unique personalities of these two men. And I think that's part of the problem. The people in the church are favoring one individual over another. They were favoring one personality, one style over another. So if he says who, that's going to bring the focus on their unique personalities. But what sets the focus on function? What is most important about you? Who you are or what you are? What's more important? Who you are or what you are? Think about this. 
I think about who I am. And this might get to, get to what makes me different from all of you. My personality. My individuality. I'm Eric. Brown hair. Never mind, not brown hair. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It, with once brown hair that's graying more and more every day. I'm Eric with, with uh, brown, with gray and white speckled hair, blue eyes. I like sports. I like um, woodworking. Uh, I like gardening to an extent. I like hiking. I like camping. I like backpacking. I like fishing. I like hunting. I'm describing who I am, right? As an individual, maybe different from some of you. I have different preferences. I have different likes and dislikes. What is more important at the end of the day? Who I am or what I am? This is how I would answer the question of what I am. I am a Christian. I am a child of God. I am a husband. I am a father. I am a pastor. That's what I'm here for. That's not who I am. That's what I am. I am a Christian. I'm here to follow God. That is what I am for. I am for worshiping God. I'm a husband. That is what I am for, loving my wife as Christ loved the church. I am a father. I am, I am here to bring up my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what I'm for. I am a pastor. I am here for you. To love you and to serve you. What are you here for? What are you here for? That's a very important question. One of the most important questions. Not who you are, but what you are. So that's the way Paul asks the question. What do these men do? He's asking, what is their role? And what is his answer? Servants. The Greek word is diakonos. The word means table waiter. The word means table waiter. So if you go to a restaurant, once you're seated, you're likely to have someone come up to you and say something like, welcome to wherever you are. Welcome to Red Robin. Tonight, I will be serving you. They're your table waiter. That is the image that Paul has in mind here as he describes himself in Apollos. His explanation goes on. They are servants. What does he say next? Through whom you believed. Paul and Apollos were not servants in whom they believed. They were servants through whom they believed. This is another important thing. Christian, you are to believe in Jesus. You don't believe in, that's popular language today. We need to clarify what we mean by that. It might not mean something bad. 
But we talk often about believing in other people. And when we're trying to encourage someone, one of the most encouraging things that you can say today is commonly thought to be, you must believe in who? In yourself. Well, there's never an instruction in Scripture to believe in other people or to believe in yourself. So we, the very least, should maybe use different words there to clarify what we mean. Paul is making a point here. He does not say we are servants in whom you believed. No. They were not the objects of their belief. We are servants through whom they believed. God is the object of faith. You are not the object of faith. God is the object of faith. A leader or teacher or preacher, even Paul or Apollos, are not the object of faith. God is always the object of faith. Man should never be the object of faith. Man will always let you down. Every man will let you down. Every woman will let you down. I will let you down. The power was not in Paul and Apollos. The power merely came through Paul and Apollos. Through whom, he says, you believed. And one last thing he says in this argument. Paul and Apollos served. And the Corinthians believed, the end of verse 5, as the Lord assigned to each. In other words, their service was assigned to them. Paul and Apollos would not have served or been able to serve if God had not assigned it to them. And the Corinthians' belief was also assigned to them. They would not have believed. They would not have been able to believe if God had not assigned it to them. In Acts 13.48, after Paul had faithfully preached to the people in Antioch, we're told this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So Paul preached and some believed and some didn't. And according to Acts 13, 48, who believed? And the answer is, those who were appointed by God to believe. Another word, those who were assigned to believe. These Corinthian Christians were assigned by God to believe. Paul and Apollos were assigned by God to preach and to teach. The Lord assigned the serving. The Lord assigned the believing. He is the master. Paul and Apollos are merely servants. They had zero control over results. Every preacher has zero control over results. God alone was giving out the assignments. Paul's doing here what he does in all his writing. As John Piper puts it, he is putting man in his lowly place and putting God in his exalted place. God is varsity, Paul is saying. We are not. We're, we are starting bench warmers and God is the starter. He's the one in the game. He's the one 
making the difference. He's the master. We are only servants. So that's the argument here in verse 5. Your exaltation of these teachers is foolish because they are merely servants. So let's move on to verses 6 and 7. In these next two verses, we have the analogy. Paul illustrates his argument that he has just made now with an analogy. And as you'll see, it's, a, it's an agricultural picture. It's a farming picture that he paints. Here are verses 6 and 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That's the analogy. And then he restates his argument. So, verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And then look down at verse 9. He adds to the analogy by saying, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now, as far as I know, we do not have a lot of farmers here. Maybe some gardeners, but not a lot of farmers. So let's go through and make sure we understand the different parts of this analogy, of this illustration. First, we have Paul. And Paul planted. Paul was a church planter. And he planted this church in Corinth, which we can read about in Acts chapter 18. He came to town with the seed of the gospel... And he spread the seed of the gospel through preaching. He was the sower who sows the seed in Matthew 13. And he stayed there in Corinth, pastoring and preaching for 18 months, we're told. And the result was a planted church. So Paul was the planter. After Paul came Apollos. And Apollos watered. He wasn't the one to plant the gospel or the church in Corinth. But he worked to make sure that it grew. To make sure that it stayed healthy. And he did this the same way that Paul did his planting. Through the preaching of the word of God. In fact, Apollos was a more gifted speaker and preacher than Paul. Acts 18 24 and 25 says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So Apollos was a, a master teacher, and he used his ability to water the seed of the gospel in Corinth. The next part of the analogy is implied in verse 6, but it's made clear in verse 9, and it's the Corinthians. They were God's field. They are the people in whom Paul planted the gospel. They are the people for whom Apollos watered the gospel. They were the objects of these preachers' hard work. They were the objects of God's affection. They were the field. And then the last agent, the change agent. 
the ultimate agent is God. Paul planted the seed. Apollos watered the seed. But what does he say? God gave the growth. The Lord, verse 5, assigned the growth. God alone is the giver of growth. God is like the sun in this analogy. And Paul could plant all the seed he wanted. And Apollos could water all he wanted. But if the sun did not shine, there would be no growth. And so with that analogy, Paul returns to his argument in verse 7 and draws this conclusion. So, based on this argument and now this picture that he's painted, so, therefore, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So remember, Paul's argument is that the the exaltation, the lifting up of, of, of these leaders is foolish because they are only servants. So he makes that point again, but he makes it more forcefully. He makes it more forcefully by saying, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. In other words, they are nothing. Verse 5, Paul says, we are servants. Verse 7, more forcefully, we are nothing. Nothing. Is that really true? Was Paul nothing? Was Apollos nothing? What about preachers and teachers and leaders in the church today? Are they nothing? Well, they aren't absolutely nothing. They are servants, according to verse 5. And planters and waterers, according to verse 6 and 7. And laborers, according to verse 8. And workers, according to verse 9. So they're not absolutely nothing. They are something. But here is what Paul means. They are comparatively nothing. They are nothing compared to God. That's his point. Paul is saying that me and Apollos, we are nothing compared to God. So in one sense, good leaders and teachers and preachers are something. After all, 1 Thessalonians 5.13 calls us to esteem them, and them is referring to church leaders, very highly in love because of their work. So good teachers are a blessing and a gift. They are something, but in another sense, they are nothing. So it's like this. When I play basketball with a fourth grader, I am something. I'm like the man. And when I play basketball with, let's say, Kirk Polkinghorne over here, I am nothing. I'm small. I'm, I'm big in one context and I'm small in another. Or it's like this. I helped coach flag football 
for ages 9 through 11 this year, and I helped coach high school varsity football this year. And when I go out and play some football with these 9 through 11-year-olds, I'm something. I'm the man. I got this little football, and I can throw it a mile, and the kids just look at me like, wow, is that Tom Brady? I mean, that looks like Tom Brady. I can look, I can look amazing, right? I could run down the field, put on a, put on a move, and they're breaking ankles, I'm scoring, and they're just thinking, he is something else. Now, it's very different when I go out and play football with the varsity football team. This would happen over and over again this year, even as I would help out with practice. We'd be practicing, and one of them would just, like, bump me, and they'd stop and say, are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm not like out here, you know, with a cane or something. In one context, I'm something. In another, I'm nothing. That's the point that, that Paul is making. He's talking about we, did, we planted and we watered. And sure, that's something. But, it, but, but compared to God, it's nothing. Because if he doesn't show up, if he doesn't do his work, then nothing good happens. Okay, there's one more thing to see here. Paul planted and Apollos watered and then they left. They, they, they eventually left the church. The verbs used to describe their work in this text, the, used, the, the words used to describe their, their work written in, are written in the Greek aorist tense. And what that verb tense means is that you're being given here, when it talks about the work of Paul and Apollos, it is a snapshot of something that happened in the past. But it's over now. The planting and the watering, it's, it's over now. It, 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 it's been done. That's what Paul and Apollos did. But the verb used to describe the work of God is written in the imperfect tense which means it is an ongoing work. Here's the point. Preachers and teachers and leaders come and go. But God alone remains and gives the growth. I won't be here forever as a teacher. I don't have any plans of leaving. I may die in this church. But at some point, if Jesus doesn't come back first, I'm going to die. And I will have come and I will have gone. And I would be one who helped to plant this church and to water this church. But at some point, that is not going to be an ongoing work. That's going to be a past tense work. And I wouldn't be surprised a hundred years from now if no one on the face of the earth knows my name. Which I'm totally okay with. My work and what I did will be past tense. At best, you could talk about it as a snapshot of something that happened a hundred years ago. But God's work is not like that. God's work is ongoing work. God alone remains and he starts the growth in you and he continues the growth in you. So the effect of Paul's planting and Apollo's watering was faith in the Corinthians, but the decisive cause of their faith was God 
And the same is true in your life. God is the sun, S-U-N. God is the heart changer. God is the creator. God is the assigner. God is the activator. God is the chooser. God is the elector. God is the predestinator. God is the atoner. God is the rescuer. God is the caller. God is the regenerator. God is the giver. And if God doesn't choose, create, call, change, there's no growth. There's just no growth apart from God. Apart from me, you will grow. Apart from any leader, you will grow. Apart from any teacher, you will grow. God will use them. But without God, there's no way you'll grow. Paul and Apollos were mere servants to be accounted as nothing compared to God without whom no growth is possible. So you hear Paul's argument, don't you? What is Paul? What is Apollos? Why are you pledging loyalty to us? Why are you dividing over us? It's foolish. And now finally we come to the alliance. There is an alliance between Paul and Apollos. And this is another reason these divisions in the church are foolish. It's not as if Paul was saying one thing and Apollos was saying another And so you needed to divide up and side with whoever you think is right. That is not the case. They are not divided. Listen to verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. He who plants, that's Paul. And he who waters, that's Apollos, are one. Paul and Apollos are one. One, this speaks of unity. There is unity, Paul is saying, amongst the leaders, so there should be unity amongst their followers. Paul and Apollos were actually dependent on one another. You need someone to plant and you need someone to water. They are allies in this. They are one. They are one in love. Their love for the Corinthians. They are one in purpose that the Corinthians would grow as Christians. They are one in strategy, preaching. They were both preachers of the gospel. They are one in message, both preaching the gospel, the word of the cross. And they have one master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is watching them. And that's who they're concerned about. And they will one day give an account to him. And their reward, they know, is from him and not the Corinthians. Paul wrote, each, that's Paul and Apollos, the leaders, teachers, each will receive, from God that is, his wages according to his labor. And so the wages or reward they will receive will be based on their labor. The criterion is not success. 
how many people were converted under their ministry. It's not success, and it will not be a comparison between one another. The wages they receive, the reward they receive in heaven will not be based on who was better, Paul or Apollos, who had more success, who had a bigger following. It will be based on, it will be according to what? His labor. Did they work? Did they spend themselves out of love for others, planting the seed of the gospel, watering the seed of the gospel, dependent on God for the growth? So his argument again, the exaltation. The fuss that you are making, Paul is saying, over me and Apollos, it's ridiculous. Let me remind you who we are. We're just servants. And we're serving because God has assigned us to serve. We wouldn't even be doing it if it wasn't for him. We wouldn't be able to do it if he had not assigned this to us. And you have believed, but you have believed because God assigned that belief to you. It was his own work in your heart. I mean, compared to God, Paul is saying, we might as well be counted as nothing. The two of us together do not amount to anything. We don't sum up to anything because we're totally dependent on God. We're just tools in his hand. He has used us and him using us. He made this point back in chapter one does not mean he used us because we are great. Him using us as we are nothing means that he is great. And so all the credit should go to God. All the boasting should go to God. And it's so foolish, Paul is arguing, for you to divide up under our individual personalities and according to your preferences. Your eyes should be on God. Your focus should be on God. You should be making much less of us and much more of Him. And if you did that, you wouldn't have near the problems you have in your church. So he's chopping the tree down at the roots. In conclusion, do you make too much of men? Do you make too much of people? Do you put people in the place of God? Where they receive your worship and your time and your energy and your money and your focus and your devotion. Do you worship people? Do you depend on people for your comfort? So you look to them before you look to God. Do you depend on people for your approval? So more than resting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That because of the blood he shed on the cross. You are accepted and loved and approved of by God through Jesus you look for that from other people and you try to please other people. You try to keep other people happy because you're looking to them as you should look to God. You're making too much of them, looking for their approval. Do you make too much of your parents, kids? Parents, do you make too much of your kids? Do you focus too much on the family? <laughs> Rather than focusing first and foremost on God? Are you okay if your kids are not okay? Are you okay when you make mistakes against your kids? Are you okay confessing that and admitting that? Are you okay because God is in the place where he belongs 
and you know that you have a role to serve and to love your kids and to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, but do you know that only God can bring that growth in their heart? Are you making too much of your kids? Are you making too much of people that you're trying to evangelize and win to Christ? Are you too easily swayed in your emotions when things don't go the way you want them to, when people don't respond the way you want them to? Do you need certain people close or far from you to respond in certain ways? Or you crumble or get too discouraged or get depressed or sink too low? I mean, we could go on, couldn't we? At first you thought, I don't make too much of men. And now you're thinking, holy smokes, I make too much of men and women. This isn't good because we're human beings. And we have this deep tendency to look horizontally too much and not look vertically enough. To look to others too much and not look to God enough. And I'm trying to get from others what I can only get from God. And so I'm giving to others what I should only give to God. What is that? It's making too much of man. Now, the Corinthians were doing that. To the point where they were jealous of one another. And they were fighting with one another. And arguing with one another over who had the better teacher. Over who had the better preacher. Over who had the better leader. Do you make too much of men? Paul's point will resound throughout this entire book. To God alone be the glory. To God alone be the credit. To God alone be the worship. Are you a Christian this morning? Are you a Christian? Let me ask that question another way. Right now. Who are you living for? Who are you living for? Who's it all about? Is it about God? Do you want to know Him more? Do you want to obey Him more? Do you want to love Him? Serve Him? Proclaim Him? Pray to Him? Read about Him. Sing to Him. Or are you about yourself? Are you about what you want? And how you can get it? Mad when you don't get it? Bowing down to yourself. Exalting yourself. Worshipping yourself. You'd never say it, but you really believe you're the most important person in the room. All the time. And so you're always thinking about yourself. Devoting all your energy to yourself. Trying to preserve yourself. Trying to esteem yourself. Trying to encourage yourself. Trying to exalt yourself. You don't need to think better thoughts about yourself. You need to think less about yourself. Think more about God. His love for you. His valuing of you. His work for you. His promises to you. 
Are you a Christian this morning? Have you come to that fork in the road where you said this is it? I've got to stop living for other people. I've got to stop living for myself. I've got to, I've got to stop trying to do this my own way. Have you heard the good news of who Jesus is? That he came and lived and suffered and died in the place of sinners like you. So that you can be reconciled to God. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Does your life look like you believe that? Do you say you believe that Jesus is who he said he was? That he did what he said he did? And then do you go on every week just living for yourself? Barely praying, barely reading his word, barely thinking about him, barely talking about him. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible you're not a Christian? Is it possible you don't believe? Is it possible you're pretending? Is it possible you're being hypocritical? Paul says, examine yourself. But don't you want to know now? If you are, don't put it off. Don't walk through those glass doors without this morning turning from sin and making a decision now in your heart to love Jesus, to trust Jesus, to follow Jesus, to give everything to Jesus. Don't let another day go by. Don't let another moment go by. Don't put it off. You don't know what's going to happen on the other side of those doors. You just don't. You don't know how much time you have on this earth. Even you young people. You don't know how much time you have on this earth. You don't know. Maybe you have a lot of time on this earth. But temptations that are just too much are going to come your way very soon. And you need to turn to Christ now. Or you're going to turn in the wrong direction and you will not look back. There's urgency. Come to Jesus. Are you here this morning and you're a Christian? You know Jesus, you love Jesus. You're like me. A lot of sin. A lot of sin. A lot of stuff that's getting worked out way too slow. <laughs> and so I don't love God the way I should love God. And I don't do the things that I should do. And I do the things that I shouldn't do. And on and on. And it's a weekly battle and a weekly struggle. But at the end of the day, you, you believe the gospel. You love Jesus Christ. You are committed to Him. You're not depending on yourself for salvation. You are depending on Christ alone. Do you know and have you been reminded this morning that you have been saved and you have grown because of Christ? God has given the growth. Do you know Jesus more today than you did a year ago? 
Do you love him more today than you did a year ago? Are you more dependent on him than you were a year ago? And you may be tempted to think, well, it was this sermon or it was, it was this teacher or it was this example. And, and give, give them your love and give them your gratitude and, and give them your thankfulness. They were used by God, maybe. But it was God, according to what we learned today, it was God who was using them to give the growth. And you could have heard those words. And you could have seen those examples. And they could have just hit a hard heart. And had no effect. But they didn't. They had a great effect on you. It's changed you. What happened? God gave the growth. So we worship him. We love him. We trust him. We obey him. Because he alone is worthy of all our devotion and all of our affections. To God alone be the glory. It was a good word for the Corinthians. It's certainly a good word for us. So we'll respond this morning to this sermon as we do every week by taking communion together. We're doing this in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. He told us to do this. He left us this image, this illustration, this picture that reminds us of the sacrifice he made on the cross through his death. 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we're remembering his death this morning. And we are proclaiming his death this morning. We are imaging his death this morning through these symbols that represent his body and blood through his sacrifice on the cross. So if you're visiting with us today, here's how we do communion. You're, you're welcome to take communion with us if, there is a little if, if you are a baptized believer. We've defined what that is today. If you are a Christian and you have turned from your sin and you have turned to Christ and you are committed to Christ and committed to his people. So you are a part of whether it's this or another church, a local church that preaches the gospel. If that's you and you're here today, we're glad you're here and you're welcome to take communion with us. We're going to have leaders up front who will serve you and everybody will empty into the center aisle. And come forward, take the bread and the juice, and if you would hold it and wait, return to your seat through the outer aisles, and then we'll take communion together as a church family. Let's pray again. Our Father in heaven, now we come to you at the close of this sermon, hopefully with full minds and hearts, and in response to the gospel, we're turning our attention now to the death of your son.
So may you be glorified as we remember and proclaim his sacrifice in our place so that we could be reconciled to you. In his name we pray. Amen.